Our teaching for this evening will come from Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18. This is God's Word. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we turn our attention to Galatians, I want to update you with some good news. Uh, This last week, uh, Matt Clegg, he's just up here reading if you don't know him, uh, passed his first round of oral exams to be ordained as a minister. And um, I was told uh, that it was on the accounts of some of the committee members there. It's one of the best exams they've ever heard, which I was really encouraged by because he's on our team. Um, The next step for him is what's called presbytery. That's August 8th. So all the other churches like ours will meet uh, pastors and elders on August 8th, and he'll stand in front of all those people, and they will ask him several questions. And uh, I know that he would, on the one hand, welcome your prayers, uh, one, just thanking God for sustaining him to this point, but also just for help to make it through the Presbytery for exam. It, it's easy for me to tell him, like, don't worry, you're going to be fine, because I've done it already. <laughs> But I understand what it's like. That just doesn't work. If you're in the midst of something that is hard and it's fearful and you're, un, you're not sure, someone telling you, hey, you're just going to be fine, doesn't necessarily make it all better. But we can pray for Matt. And I know he would appreciate that. And if you're curious at all about what it is that he, he's getting examined on, there are a number of exams. He, he's getting examined in theology. Uh, on the English Bible, on our book of church order, on church history, which is huge, as well as the history of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. And he also had to write two papers, one that was a theology paper and one that was a a paper that's a a study of a specific passage in the Bible. And um, it's a lot. So pray for him, if you would. I would appreciate that. I know he would, too. Um, All right. We're back in Galatians. And, in fact, we're coming to the end of Galatians uh, tonight. This will be our last Sunday in this book. And um, I hope it's been good for you. Uh, I tell you, this is a book that, on the one hand, has a very simple message. And on the other hand, it it gets fairly, uh, let's say, thick at times. Paul is downloading a lot in a very short amount of time. And if you're 
new here tonight, or perhaps you could just use a refresher. Before we look at our last passage, I just want to give you a really big overview of the book. Because what I hope is that tonight's not the last time that you spend time reading this book. Uh, I think it's safe to say that uh, of the books of the Bible, this one ranks near the top as the most significant book in the history of the church for people coming to understand and to be renewed in, what do we mean when we talk about the gospel, the good news? And so I think a helpful way to to overview this book for you is to think about Paul is writing to churches in Galatia. It is one of the earliest letters and arguably his most passionate letter because the very integrity of the gospel is at stake. There are those among these churches who are presenting another gospel. And Paul is aiming at those false teachers. He's trying to correct and clarify and even rescue these churches from a false gospel. So what is he trying to address? There are essentially three questions. There's the question of authority. How can you really know what to believe or who to believe? And Paul answers that question in chapters 1 and 2. And his answer is essentially Jesus Christ through his apostles. That's chapters 1 and 2. The second question this book addresses is the question of salvation. How can a person get right with God? How can you be forgiven and restored to his favor and fellowship? And Paul answers that question essentially in chapters 3 and 4. And the answer that he gives is Jesus Christ through his cross. So you have Jesus Christ through his apostles, and then Jesus Christ through his cross. And then the third question it addresses is the question of holiness. Or another way to put that is, how can you change? And Paul addresses that question essentially in chapters 5 and 6, which we've been looking at most recently. And the answer that he gives is Jesus Christ through his spirit. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. And when we come to our last passage tonight, to the very end of the letter, it's striking if you look in verse 11, because here Paul says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. That might sound kind of strange, but uh, at first you need to know that ordinarily Paul would use what was called an amanuensis, which is a big fancy word for a secretary, somebody who would listen to him and write down what he's saying when he wanted to write a letter to someone. But here, Paul says at the very end, he's now taking the pen in his own hand. And with big letters, think bold print, underline. Very important. At the very end of this letter, Paul takes the pen in his own own hand to sign off. In other words, what we see here in these last few verses is if there's one thing Paul wants to leave us with, he wants you to remember what he says in these last few verses. And what he has to tell us here, I think uh, we could put it like this. Why, Why do we need to listen to these last few verses? Well, I think it's because he tells us something very familiar that's deadly 
And he tells us something that is unfamiliar, but gives life. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this passage this way. I want to look at it in terms of what is the character of a counterfeit gospel? Throughout this letter, Paul has been arguing against these false teachers who have been presenting another gospel, which Paul actually says in chapter 1 is no gospel at all. So he wants us to see very clearly at the end of this letter, do you know, can you see what a false gospel actually looks like, what it is? So that's the first thing we'll look at. But then, in contrast to that, the character of the true gospel. He's not just telling you to be aware of a counterfeit or a false one. He also wants you to see really clearly what is the character of the good news about Jesus. And then we'll finish by looking at why does it matter that we can tell the difference. So first, let's look here at the character of a counterfeit gospel. Look in verses 12 to 13. The very first thing that we learn here is that a counterfeit gospel focuses exclusively on outward appearance and behavior rather than the heart. Listen here. Look in verse 12. Paul here is, in verse 12 and 13, he's describing the priorities of the false teachers in these churches. Verse 12, he says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. That is, your ability, your resources, your performance human effort, your diligence, your obedience to make a good showing in the flesh. But then also in verse 13, towards the end, in order that they might boast in your flesh. The very first ingredient of a false gospel is a gospel that is not concerned with the heart, but it's concerned with outward show. It's superficial. It's skin deep. It doesn't go to the heart. And what we see here as Paul begins to describe the priorities of these false teachers is he talks about this in verse 13 again of boasting in the flesh. Now, to boast uh, can also be understood as to glory in. And in the Bible, to boast in something or to glory in something is to talk about or to look at something that you rely on. It's your foundation. It's the thing that you build your life on. It's what you have confidence in. And another way to think about that is in the Bible, the word glory also carries with it this idea of weightiness, of heaviness. So to boast in something or to glory in something is to give weight to that thing. It's the thing that you hook yourself up to. It's what anchors you. It's what enables you to know up from down, right from left. To glory in something is to have something that you look at, that you put your confidence in to know that you're okay. That's what it means to boast. And here, Paul is describing that the false teachers and the temptation that the Galatian Christians are presented with is to boast in their own efforts, in their own resources, in their efforts, their obedience, what they bring to the table. 
So counterfeit gospel, the very first thing we learn here is that salvation is outward conformity, not inward renewal. That's the first thing. The second thing we learn about a false gospel here is that it offers hope apart from the cross. Look in verse 13, again, actually in verse um, 12. Why are the false teachers concerned about outward performance, their approval in the eyes of other people, especially the religious people of the day? Paul tells us, so that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, the, Paul is telling us that the concern for this outward conformity, calling these Christians to be circumcised outwardly, to follow God's law outwardly, is in order to avoid persecution that comes from the cross of Christ. Now, what's he talking about? What he has in mind here is actually not far from what he said back in chapter 5. When he says to uh, these Christians, he says, Brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. See, a false gospel offers hope apart from the cross. And the reason why, why might they want that kind of hope or offer such a thing? Paul tells us it's because the gospel's offensive. The gospel says, the cross says, you do not have what it takes to save yourself. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter how diligent you are. It doesn't matter how obedient you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter who you're married to. Doesn't matter where you were educated. You are utterly helpless before the cross of Jesus. The cross is an offense to the flesh. It's an offense to our pride. It's utterly humbling. And therefore, to love the cross is to invite criticism. It's to invite even persecution. It's to invite disdain. Because to love the cross is an indictment on all human endeavor as your righteousness. It's a statement about not just you personally, but all of humanity, that we are helpless in ourselves. So that's the second thing, that a counterfeit gospel offers hope apart from the cross. And the third thing we see is that a counterfeit gospel is actually powerless to change you. Look in verse 13. Paul says, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Now, if you remember at all from our series, what we've known, seen again and again, is Paul has essentially said, the law was never given to bring life. Because if there was a law that could bring life, then righteousness would come through obedience to God. But that's not the purpose of God's law. The purpose of God's law in this book, according to Paul, is actually to bring us to the end of ourselves, to help us to see that at the very heart of the law, 
Paul says, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that we are incapable of loving as God loves. And therefore, we need to be rescued. You see, instead of actually bringing about change, boasting in the flesh, it actually masks a deeper problem. It masks a deeper problem that we don't like to admit. That try as we might, left to ourselves, we will always come up short. And in fact, all a counterfeit gospel can do is actually breed pride and deepen hypocrisy. It can never give you life. All it can do is deepen pride and deepen our hypocrisy. And the reason is because it keeps us focused on the externals and it keeps you focused on how you measure up compared to other people. And it never deals with the heart. It never brings you to the one who can give life. And so if we remember that here Paul wants us to see a counterfeit gospel, it's outward. It's only concerned with external observation and obedience and performance. Offers a hope apart from the cross. And it's powerless to change you. What's, what's the opposite of that? Notice the character of the true gospel, Paul begins to unfold for us in verse 14. This whole passage is built around the but at the beginning of verse 14. Here he's contrasting a false gospel with the true gospel. And he says, very first thing, he says, the true gospel, it's not about what we do, but what God has done. Listen here in verse 14, he says, but far be it from me, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, a true gospel, the good news of the Bible, looks only to Jesus. The message of Jesus, the good news of Christianity, always gets your eyes off yourself. Any other message that keeps your eyes fixed on you and how you're doing or not doing is not good news. But the good news that Paul wants us to remember and to cling to is a good news that turns you away from yourself and turns you towards Jesus. Now, what might that sound like to do that? Paul actually gives us a, a very helpful window into this in another one of his letters in Philippians chapter 3. He's talking about himself here. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, what's Paul talking about when he says, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish? He's actually talking about his reputation. He's talking about years of study of the Bible. He's talking about his zeal for God. 
that actually led him to persecute the church. He's talking about everything in his life that he used to look to to know who he really was. Everything in his life that he looked to to build his identity upon. And here Paul instead says that he glories in, he boasts in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've grown up around the church or you've known anything about Christianity and heard about it, I think it's easy for us to miss just how profound this statement is from Paul. Paul is saying that the one thing that he glories in, the weightiest thing in his life, the thing that anchors him, that roots him, the thing upon which he is able to understand and know who he really is and to whom he belongs is in that day and time the most horrific symbol of condemnation, of judgment, of punishment. It's, uh, it's the cross. And in fact, if you, if you read any of the uh, legal documents from the time, it's so horrific in the mindset of the people of that time that they didn't even mention crucifixion or the cross and the judgment. What they refer to it as is that unlucky tree. <laughs> that was interesting. That unlucky tree. They wouldn't even talk about crucifixion. It was so horrific. But do you see, here is the upside-down wonder of the gospel. It's why I put on the front of your bulletin the quote from Matthew Henry, who describes the victories of the cross. He says, Christ's wounds are your healings. His agonies, your repose. His conflicts, your conquests. His groans, your songs. His pains, your ease. His shame, your glory. His death, your life. His sufferings, your salvation. You see, Paul, when he says that the true gospel is to boast in the cross, is to see on that cross of the Lord Jesus life. It's totally backwards because on the cross is the death of a man, the Son of God. The only one undeserving of death gets death in order that those who boast in him, which is simply another way of saying to trust in him, get life. That's the first thing. The true gospel is about what Jesus has done not about what we do. But the second thing, the true gospel has power to change you from the inside out. Notice here again in verse 14, he says, far be it for me to boast of anything but the cross of Jesus, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What's he talking about? This is how the cross changes you from the inside out. Here, the world. What does Paul mean by the world? One, one commentator described it like this, that the world is everything outside of Christ in which we seek glory and put our trust. 
And so to glory in the cross actually creates a whole new dynamic in your life. How do you know what that is? When Paul says, the world has been crucified to me, what that means is that all of the things in the world that get your attention, that are alluring to you, that you long for, that capture your affections, that you love, they no longer have power over you. They begin to lose their grip on you. They're not the most important thing anymore. Boasting in the cross, glory in the cross, means that the world has been crucified to you. But then also he says that I have been crucified to the world. Here he has in mind the idea that the cross changes what I most deeply love and delight in. Now, what do we make of that? What Paul is saying here brings us to the third thing about this gospel, is that the true gospel promises a free life. Instead of boasting in ourselves, glorying in the things of this world, the cross actually sets you free. It means that we no longer need to fear or worship the world. Instead, we can enjoy it and delight in it. We can serve and love other people without being ruled by their opinions or their approval. We can pursue and enjoy the things that God has given us without building our lives on them and being owned by them or enslaved to them. The gospel sets you free from the world and from your own desires. The cross has the power to reorder our loves around Jesus. And so for Paul, at the very end of this letter, what he wants you to understand about the gospel, the good news about Jesus, it's not about what you do, it's about what he has done. And it has the power to change you from the inside out. And it has the power to set you free. Now, why do we need to see the difference between these two totally opposite gospels? Why do we need to see the total, the total difference between them? Mainly the reason is because you're going to glory in something. It's not that you will or you won't. Everyone does. Everyone is building their life on something to know that they are okay. And the reason why it matters is in verse 15. Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. In other words, your adherence, your religious scrupulosity, no longer matters. It's irrelevant when it comes to salvation. Now, you have to think about this. Again, for us living now, it's think, a little difficult. In the first century, for someone like Paul to say that circumcision doesn't matter anymore is completely unthinkable. Especially when, for example, in Acts chapter 15, 
one of the main controversies in the early church were those saying, you must be circumcised or you cannot be saved. Paul is saying something that would have made an enormous impact and created all kinds of conflict. But here he says, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. In other words, the true gospel means that you no longer need to feel inferior. Circumcision doesn't mean anything. It's the end of having to measure up. But on the other hand, Paul is saying that you no longer can feel superior over other people in light of the gospel because uncircumcision doesn't matter either. It's the end of boasting in our performance. But what does matter then? Look again in verse 15. He says, what does matter, what's the most important thing is a new creation. Now, there is a world of richness in just those three words, a new creation. And the word there, creation, can also be translated creature. And what Paul has in mind here is that the cross of Jesus is actually the beginning of God's new creation. Jesus' death and resurrection is the, really truly, it is the new heavens and the new earth brought into the present. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is God starting over. It's the beginning of his new creation. Now, what's that look like in your life or my life? It looks like being made new, a whole new creature. It's not just a religious touch-up, but being made new from the inside out. And what Paul's talking about here is nothing new. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel said in chapter 36, this is God speaking. He says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's why we read from John chapter 3 earlier in the story of Nicodemus, where Jesus says, unless God's spirit breaks into your life and makes you new, you cannot see the kingdom. In other words, God can't be manipulated. He can't be cajoled. Salvation is a free gift that God gives to you and remakes you from the inside out. Now, how else can we, how does he help us understand maybe a bit more what he means by this new creation? Well, it's actually parallel to what he says earlier in chapter 5. He says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What is the new creation What does it mean to be a new creature? How does the Spirit of God, what does He bring about in your life? Well, He brings about faith working through love. That's what the new creation is all about that He's speaking to here. And so, as we come to an end of this book, what I want you to think about is really where Paul leaves us in verse 16. He says, for all who walk by this rule 
Peace and mercy be upon them. Here Paul likens this message, this good news, to a rule or a standard or a foundation for your entire life, the lens through which you see yourself, other people, and the world that God has made. And he promises here, he says, anyone who lives by this good news will find peace and mercy. Anyone who lives by this good news will know what it is to enjoy peace. Not just any peace, but peace with God. And will understand and know and experience mercy. What it is to not get what you deserve, but also to experience grace, to get what you don't deserve. And that's all wrapped up in this gospel that this letter is all about that Paul wants to leave us with and he's writing with big hands big letters to say don't forget this let this be the rule of your life and you will know peace and mercy let's pray Father in heaven as we come to an end of looking at this book we pray that you would help us to hold fast to this good news that you would give us grace to glory in the cross of Jesus. That our own desires and even the very good things of this world, good though they may be, would lose their grip on our hearts. And that we would find ourselves increasingly being changed from the inside out by your Spirit. That we would find ourselves delighting in all that you have given, all that you have made. And we find ourselves rejoicing in, relying upon, resting in what Jesus has done. Father, we pray that you would help us to glory in the cross of Jesus. Please help us. Help us as a community to point each other to Jesus. Especially when we find it so easy to believe a false gospel. Help us to see those in our own lives. And we pray that you would continually give us eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.